السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم اجعلنا منهم ومن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواسوا بالحق وتواسوا بالصبر آمين يا رب العالمين ثم أما بعد uh, In the beginning, uh, uh, Divine Speech Program is broken up into two parts So today and tomorrow Today's agenda is basically what I like to call micro-studies micro-studies and tomorrow's agenda is macro-studies now that's technical terms so let's make that easier to understand micro means we're going to try to understand some things about the ayah of the Qur'an or how Allah uses certain kinds of words or how Allah uses things at the very small you know, zoomed in we're going to take a microscope and put it to the Qur'an and look at a very zoomed in view of how the Qur'an is structured. Tomorrow, we're going to look at the Qur'an in a different way. We're going to kind of take a, look, take a step back and look at the bigger picture. We're going to look at how the surah is organized, how the stories are spread all over the Qur'an, why does Allah take oaths in the Qur'an, how come Allah repeats Himself so much in the Qur'an, bigger picture questions. So those, those are two different kinds of views. You know, I like to compare it to when you're in a garden. If you're sitting in a garden somewhere and you're staring at a flower, then you're zooming in. You take your camera and you zoom in and you're kind of taking this close-up shot of the camera. But when you do that, you lose sight of the fact that you're in the middle of a valley and there are other trees and rivers and everything else because you're so focused on the beauty of one flower. But when you're flying over in a helicopter or an airplane or you're standing on top of the mountain looking down, you see a different kind of beauty. The beauty is of the entire scene, you understand? So there's two different kinds of beauty. Beauty when you pay attention at the micro level, when you zoom in, and beauty when you take a step back and you look at the bigger picture. That is how this course is divided, this survey study is divided. The divisions that are here in this course, the sections that um, inshallah I'll try to discuss with you are not sections I learned from a book or that I got from a particular source. I know a number of you are going to have questions about where did you get this stuff from? The bibliography is pretty long. The sources and the research is actually over a number of years from maybe 50 different sources. And inshallah ta'ala for those of you that are registered, when the course is over I'll send you a bibliography anyway. Some sources that were used to compile this stuff. But I also, because this is the introduction, I want to explain some other things to you as well. I don't want to make this an academic lecture. That is not my intention. My intention is not to explain this to you in a scholarly way. First of all, because I'm not a scholar. And second of all, because I don't see the benefit for you. Yesterday I told you, let's see if you remember. Yesterday I told you, you have to remember how many things about Ar-Rahman and how many things about Ar-Rahim. Three things about Ar-Rahman and two things about Ar-Rahim. Let's really test your memory now. How many things you got to know? About, what are the things you have to know about Ar-Rahman? I'm scared. I'm so scared right now. Huh? It's extreme. It is happening right now. What else? It is? Temporary. Okay. So I said this and somebody sent me a written question. Akhi, you said that Ar-Rahman has three things and Ar-Rahim has two things. What is your evidence? Where did you get this from? Three things and two things. How can you make this up? What's the dalil, brother? Now, 
just bear with me for five minutes, maybe less than five minutes. For the next few minutes, you will not understand what I'm saying, but that's okay. Ar-Rahman is on the wazan of Fa'lan. Fa'lan is called Sighatul Mubalagha. Sighatul Mubalagha is the Mubalagh form of an ism fa'il, ay fa'il. Fa'il has huduth in it. Huduth means it's happening right now. So Fa'lan is also happening right now. Fa'lan, Sighatul Mubalagha, the alif and nun at the end is actually one of the strongest forms of Mubalagha. That's why we say the word extreme. The ulama of sarf, of morphology, say that when you use the Fa'lan form, that it can be only used for something that is arid, that is temporary, that is not going to last. It has huduth, it has Mubalagha, and it, it does not last. So, um, if I did that yesterday, there would be people jumping into the lake. <laughs> you understand? My job, I, I, can stud, I can explain it that way, that's fine. But that won't benefit you. And as a matter of fact, when I used to be studying these things, it was explained that way. It was explained that way. And it's great for a university. It's great for a scholar. It's, a great, it's great for a talibul ilm. It's just not great for my cousin. It's not great for my neighbor. Because they don't understand that. When I say it's three things and two things, it's easy. Simple. So my job is to try to present these things. And you know, somebody says, where did you get this from? And I'll point you to a lot of books. I'll give you a bibliography. But when you go to those books, are they going to say, Ar-Rahman has three things and Ar-Rahim has two things? No. There's going to be a four-page discussion on Fa'lan. Enjoy. <laughs> you understand? So even though what I'm sharing with you is based on these sources, I am not a scholar. I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher by profession. And a jo the job of a teacher is not to give you information. The job of a teacher is to help you understand information. And when you help someone understand information, you have to take complex things and you have to try to make them what? Simple. You have to make them simple. Eventually, one day, you guys will be more advanced in your Arabic and in your tafsir and in your Quran than I am. I make dua for that. And when you are, then you'll say, this is a child's play, let me read the books. Enjoy. I make dua for you. I hope you benefit tremendously from that experience. But for now, we're going to take it easy. Is that clear to everybody? So for those of you that came here to take super academic notes, I am sorry to disappoint you. Okay? But for those of you that are students of deen, MashaAllah, we have lots of them. You have your Hufad of Qur'an, your students of the Arabic language. Some of you, MashaAllah, are even ulama. You're far more knowledgeable than I am. The one thing you might learn today is how do you take Islamic knowledge that is complicated and how do you make it what? Simple. So you're not here to learn something new except maybe some teaching method that I've experienced from before. What I'm really excited about today also, I want to share with you, I love divine speech. Where did this seminar come from? This seminar actually, I used to teach Arabic. And Arabic, as you know, can be a very boring class. So to motivate my students, at the end of the Arabic class, it should be a three-hour class. Three-hour class. At the end of the three hours, I would give them, hey, 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 let me share something with you from the Qur'an. This is why we're learning Arabic, because the Qur'an is awesome. So let me give you an example. And I would not give that example until the what? until the end. So the student who wants to leave early is like, oh, but I want to hear the example. 
So he stays till the end. And I would do this. I would do one example in the very beginning and one example at the very end. So the guy who comes late misses the beginning <laughs> and the guy who is leaving early misses the end. This is how I ensure attendance in a classroom. <laughs> you know? So I used to give these examples of what makes the Qur'an awesome and what makes it beautiful and things like that. And my students loved it and they said, why don't you just teach a class of just the examples? No Arabic. <laughs> so they said that enough times and I compiled enough examples that I said, might as well turn it into a program. Might as well turn it into a course. This is where this course kind of came from. Those examples. The other thing is, when, you, when we study the Qur'an nowadays, we study it, uh, subhanAllah, we study it from the angle of tajweed. We study the Qur'an from the angle of tafsir. We study the Qur'an from the angle of ulum al-Qur'an. There are different angles that, from which we study the Qur'an. But one of the angles that's missing, that's actually really important, is we, we don't study the Qur'an as much, just as literature. The Qur'an just as literature. People study Shakespeare's literature. People study novels, read novels as literature. But people don't think of the Qur'an as literature. The moment they think of the Qur'an, they start thinking of some complex discussions and religious discussions and philosophical discussions and academic discussions. But you know, when you do all of those things, you lose sight of the fact that it's something beautiful. That it's beautiful literature. And so the intention behind this program also is to reintroduce the Qur'an to us, not as something to study the tafsir of necessarily, not even to go through the ulum al-Qur'an side of it, even though those things will come up, but rather to look at the Qur'an as literature. That's what we're going to do, a literary analysis of the Qur'an. And I personally believe, because of my experience in the United States, I personally believe this is very important for our times. Here's why. If we do enough work on the Qur'an as literature, then we can produce entire bodies of work focusing on this area. And when we do, then the Qur'an will not only be taught in the religious studies departments in universities all over the world. The Qur'an can then also be taught in the literature department. The Qur'an can also be taught where? In the literature department, the world literature department. And when it is taught in the world literature department, you see it's, di it's different. When the, when the non-Muslims, they study the Qur'an in the religious programs, in the religious studies programs, they study it to criticize it, to attack it, to deconstruct it, to tell you the mistakes in it, and all this other stuff. They only come at it to criticize it. But when you study something in the literature department, you're not studying it to criticize it, you're studying it to appreciate it. So in other words, we can create an opportunity to study, the world can study the Qur'an in a way that is not confrontational. It's actually out of curiosity. It changes the conversation about Allah's book entirely. So there's that opportunity as well. Okay. So let's begin, ta'ala. The first thing I want to talk to you about today, this, this introduction session is going to be the longest one. This introduction is two parts. This is the long introduction, it's two parts. A brief introduction, a literary introduction to the Qur'an, and a brief liter uh, uh, introduction to Arabic. We need both. A little bit of an introduction to the Qur'an, and a little bit of an introduction to Arabic from the literature perspective. So this is not like Ulum al-Qur'an, it's something else. So let's start with the Qur'an. The Qur'an is made up of how many surahs? 114 surahs. Alhamdulillah, you guys know that. Okay, 114 surahs. Sometimes people call them 114 chapters. Sometimes they call them 114 chapters. The first thing I want to tell you is a surah is not a chapter. 
A surah is not a chapter, no such thing. We're going to have to redefine surah. Let's talk about chapters first. When you have chapters in a book, you, you start from chapter 1, you go to chapter 2, you go to chapter 3, you go to chapter 4. When you go to chapter 4, they will never repeat what they taught you in chapter what? 1. They will not. They will take the concepts that they already covered in 1, 2, and 3, and then build that in number 4. Yes? And if they have to remind you of something from chapter 1, what do they do? Refer back to chapter 1. They'll put a footnote in the book and say, go back to page this, go back to page that, this has already been talked about. We already previously discussed this, see page 81. You see, you see that in books? The idea of chapters is that they build an argument little by little by little chronologically. And the other thing about chapters is if you change the sequence of the chapters, if you take chapter 10 and you make it chapter 3, and you take chapter 2 and make it chapter 5. Does the book make sense anymore? No. Is it possible somebody has only studied Suratul Kawthar? And somebody else has studied Suratul Baqarah and it may still make sense? Is that possible in the Quran? So it's not like chapter. From a literature perspective, it's not like a chapter. The other thing about chapters is, especially for something historical, Quran is historical, the chapters have a certain chronology. The earliest writing is at the beginning, then the later writing, then the later writing, then the later writing. In other words, there should be some kind of order in chapters. Subject order, chronological order. Is the Quran in chronological order? Is it the earliest surah is in the beginning, then the later one, then the later one, then the later one? Is it like that? If, if the Quran was in chronological order, then it would be Iqra' bismi rabbika ladhi khalaq in the beginning. Right? And ayat of Surah Al-Baqarah would be, some of the ayat would be at the very end. It would be completely different order. So the Qur'an is not in chronological order. The Qur'an is not in chapter order. The Qur'an is not organized by size. If it was by size, Baqarah would be Surah number 1. Kawthar would be Surah number 114. It's not by size. Oh, oh, I know, maybe the Qur'an is organized by subject. It's organized by subject. Is it organized by subject? No. I mean, if you say, what is the subject of Surah Al-Baqarah, it's very difficult to answer that question. It's very difficult because everything in the Qur'an is in Surah Al-Baqarah. لِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ سَنَامٌ وَسَنَامُ الْقُرْآنِ الْبَقَرَةِ Everything has a peak. The peak of the Qur'an is Baqarah. All the themes of the Qur'an are inside Al-Baqarah. So you can't even point at Surah Al-Baqarah and say, this is the subject of Surah Al-Baqarah. You can't do it. As a matter of fact, when you go to a surah like Surah Ibrahim, you can't say, Oh, I know what Surah Ibrahim is about. It's about Ibrahim, alayhi salam. No, actually, when you start reading Surah Ibrahim, you're going to find a lot of things that have nothing to do with Ibrahim, alayhi salam. Oh, Surah Al-Baqarah, it must be a 286 ayat about cows. <laughs> Does that happen? No. A cow comes up. But there's a lot of things that have nothing to do with beef. In Surah Al-Baqarah. You understand? You know, chapters have a title. Usually chapters have a heading, a name. And that name tells you everything about the chapter. Does the Quran do that? No. So it is, in my view, Allahu A'lam, it is incorrect from a literature perspective to call the Surah a chapter. It's unique. It's its own entity. 
There is no other book that has surahs. It's only Quran. Every other book can have chapters, sections. Quran has surahs. In other words, Allah from the very beginning set His own standard. You see, when you write an essay and you hand it to your teacher, your teacher corrects it and says you should break the paragraph over here. You should put the capital letter over here. You should reorganize the subject over here. Take this sentence out. Why? Because there is a standard and you are not meeting the standard. Isn't that true? But the Qur'an came with its own standard. So you, don't, you cannot actually, from the very beginning, I want you to understand this idea, you cannot compare the Qur'an to any other literature. Because from the very beginning, the units of any book are chapters, and the units of the Qur'an are surah. You can't do it. This is the biggest mistake of uh, you know, non-Muslim scholarship about the Qur'an. They compare it to other literature and say, well, the Qur'an, its chapters don't make any sense. Its chapters are unorganized. And I say, listen, my kafir friend, these aren't chapters. So you're missing the point altogether. Now inside the chapter, the surahs are made up of what? What is inside the chapter? Ins oh, sorry, inside the surah. What's inside? Ayah. Ayah. Now sometimes we translate ayah as what? We translate it as verse. I have a real problem with that too. In the English language, especially in the American context and possibly even the, the European, the British and Australian other contexts, the word verse is used in two ways. We need to understand these things because they have implications. The word verse is used in two ways. The first way of the word verse is used is when you're talking about poetry. Verses of a song or verses of a poem. You, you've heard this before, right? Verses of a song or verses of a poem. This is problematic to call the, the ayat of the Qur'an to be called verses. It is as though we are comparing the ayat of the Qur'an to what? Poetry. The problem with that is the Qur'an emphatically says, وَمَا عَلَّمْنَاهُ الشِّعْرِ we didn't teach him poetry. It is not the word of a poet. Poets, they don't know what they're talking about. And people who have completely lost, they follow them. In other words, the Quran is very strong in declaring that it has nothing to do with poetry. So when we use the word verse, there's already a problem in the English speaking mind because there's an association with poetry, which is a problem. Here's the second kind of a, so the first thing was it has to do something with poetry or songs. The second issue is that verses usually come up when we talk about verses of the Bible. In the English speaking world, the European world, and part of the European world, and of course the colonized European world, the Americas, the Australias of the world, etc. When we think of verse, we think of verse of the Bible, which is also problematic. Because when we want people to think about the Quran, we don't want them to think about what? the Bible. As a matter of fact, there are allegations made by Western scholars that the Qur'an stole its information from the Bible. They, they say that the Qur'an, its information, like Ma'adullah, the Prophet wasallam, he used to travel, he used to trade, and he traded in Syria, and he traded in, you know, in different parts, some Christian parts, and he heard some of those stories, and he mixed them up, and he put them in the Qur'an. So it's actually taken from the people of the book. We don't want even to give the hint that it has anything to do with the Bible, actually. 
Because what is left of the Bible is actually something that has been tampered with by human beings. I don't want to give that association at all. And so I would have to say that the definition of an ayah is also, like the definition of surah, unique. Somebody said to me, maybe ayah could be translated as sentence. The sentences of the Qur'an. Let me tell you why that's impossible. The first ayah of Surah Al-Baqarah is what? Alif, Lam, Mim. Full stop? Is that a sentence? I don't know if it is and I don't know if it's not. Only Allah knows what that means. Okay, check out this one. The first ayah of Surah Al-Rahman is what? Al-Rahman, it's one word. Is one word a sentence? One word is not a sentence. By the way, in English, Allah taught the Qur'an. That's a sentence, right? But if you just say Allah, is that a sentence? No. Sometimes there are ayat that are less than a sentence. They're just a word. So you can't call an ayah a sentence. Sometimes an ayah, sometimes there are three ayat and they go together to make one sentence. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahimi Maliki Yawmiddin is one sentence. All of that is actually one sentence. Sometimes you have ayat that have ten sentences inside one or nine sentences inside one ayah. Allahu la ilaha illahu al-hayyul qayyum. La ta'khudhu sinatun wa la nawm. Lahu ma fi samawati wa ma fi al-ard. All the way till the end. All of those nine sentences belong inside how many ayahs? One ayah, so sometimes an ayah is less than a sentence. Sometimes an ayah or multiple ayahs make up one sentence. Sometimes lots of ayat are inside one sentence. So it is impossible for me to call the ayah a sentence. I can't call it verse and I can't, can't call it sentence. We have to call it something. I have an idea. We should call it ayah. It is unique. It is unique. It has no, 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 nothing else has the definition of ayah. But you still want to translate it in your head, don't you? Like, what should we, how should we translate ayah? And so today, and in part of this introduction, even though I didn't give you a detailed discussion about surah, I will do that tomorrow. You know why I will do that tomorrow? Any guess? Any guess? Why will I talk about surah tomorrow and ayah today? Today is micro. Tomorrow is? Macro and surah is macro. So we'll talk about surah tomorrow, but at least we have to talk about ayah today. We'll start with that today. It is one of the most fascinating words of the Arabic language, the word ayah. And I will not write this on the screen because I'm lazy and also because I want you to take notes. The word ayah, the root letters, are hamza, ya, and ya. Hamza, ya, and ya amazing word of the Arabic language. What other words come from the word that we get ayah from? Let me tell you, before I give you the, there are two sides to look at this. The one thing is, we're gonna look at the word ayah from the language perspective, which I'll share with you in a second. But I wanna share something about the word ayah with you from the Quran's perspective. I want you to appreciate something about the word ayah. It's amazing. One of the most amazing things I've ever learned about the Quran this whole year, this last year, is the word ayah. It's one of the most amazing lessons. So the Quran says that its unit, its units are ayat. Yes? Bal huwa ayatun bayinatun. Quran is just ayat bayinat. 
Allah says that Isa alayhi salam is an ayah. وَلِنَجْعَلَكَ آيَةً لِلنَّاسِ Isa alayhi salam himself is an ayah. لَقَدْ كَانَ فِي يُوسُفَ وَإِخْوَتِهِ آيَاتٌ لِلسَّائِلِينَ Yusuf and his brothers, inside of them there are ayat. In the story of Yusuf and in the story of his brothers. As his brothers, good guys or bad guys most of the story? They're bad guys, even though later on we'll learn they're not really that bad, but for now. So there are ayat inside a prophet and there are in ayat inside not too many, not too good guys, but even they have ayat inside them. So ayat are not just the, the, the parts of a book, but they are actually things that people did are ayat, history is ayat, people themselves, like Isa himself is an ayah, whatever happened to Yusuf is an ayah, whatever his brothers did is also an ayah, Allah says the tree is an ayah and the mountain is an ayah, Allah says history is an ayah and the future is an ayah, Allah says what is inside your body, everything inside of your body and inside of your feelings and inside of your hearts, that is also ayat, sanurihim ayatina fil afaqi wa fi anfusihim, inside of yourselves whatever is going on are all ayat, your sleep is an ayah, you waking up is an ayah, marriage is an ayah, love between husband and wife is an ayah. Oh my God. I'm not making this up, this is in the Quran. The revelation of Allah is ayah. Human experience is an ayah. Everything in the universe is an ayah. Actually, if you properly study the Quran, the conclusion you come to is that Allah uses the word ayah to describe all reality. All human experience, all human experience, all truth, everything in existence is actually accurately defined as an ayah. Once you study the Quran, you don't ask what is an ayah, you actually more ask what is not an ayah. Pretty much everything around you and around me is an ayah, not only around us, inside us. All of it is an ayah. Next time you read Quran and Allah says that is an ayah and this is an ayah and that's an ayah, pay attention. Just change your perspective of what an ayah is. You see how problematic it is to translate ayah as verse? How limited it is? And how much bigger the ayah is in the Quran? Allah says, for example, I was talking about this in the United Kingdom, when the winds blow. Allah swears by the winds that blow, the breeze. So you go outside, unlike last night, if you go outside, sometimes there's a breeze. You feel the breeze. The next time you feel the breeze, you should remember that that's actually the tafsir of the ayah of the Qur'an. You just experienced an ayah of the Qur'an standing outside when the wind was blowing. That's an ayah. The best of seed of Wadhariyati Darwa is not in a book. The best of seed of Dariyati Darwa is when you experience what? The wind. The best of seed of Awalam Yaraw ilatayri fawkahum safatin wa yakbidna. Didn't they look at the bird above them that spreads its wings and pulls them in? The best of seed of that is not in a book. Where's the best of seed of didn't they look at the bird? When you go look at a bird. The ayah is inside the book and the ayah is also outside the book. You with me so far? Okay. This is actually very powerful. I'll tell you why later on. But now the language of the ayah. I gotta keep track of time too. The language of the ayah. We're actually making pretty good time. Alhamdulillah. I told you the root letters of ayah are what? Do you remember? 
Hamza, ya, and ya. Okay. This word of the Arabic language gives you many meanings. And I want to go through a list of the main meanings of this root. All of which are related to the term ayah. So we gain an insight, we get a deeper appreciation of what is an ayah anyway. From that, we got some idea of what is an ayah from the Qur'an's perspective. All reality is described as an ayah. Revelation is also described as an ayah. But then from the language perspective, so here's how it goes. Number one, they say the Arabic, Arabs used to say, you don't have to write this down, kharaj al-qawmu bi-ayatihim. The people, you know, caravans used to travel in Arabia, and they pack their bags, load them up on camels, and they travel, and they set up a camp, and they spend the night there, and they do a barbecue and a party and all of it. And in the morning, they pack up and they leave. Now when they leave, do they take everything or they take most things? Technically, they take most things. The garbage, the, you know, the, the burnt fire, the burnt wood. Everything that has no value, they leave. Everything that has a value, they take up and they go. So when somebody else comes to the campsite, where they left, do they notice that somebody was here? Yes, but do they notice there is nothing valuable left? So they say, خَرَجَ الْقَوْمُ بِآيَتِهِمْ The people left with everything valuable. The first meaning of an ayah is actually something valuable. Isn't that amazing? That means everything you experience is what? Valuable. Every problem is valuable. Every gift of Allah is valuable. Every challenge in your life is valuable. Every day is valuable. Every night is valuable. Every ant is valuable. You know, subhanAllah, ayah. The second meaning of ayah comes from, you get the word ayy from it, which means a question. Al-istifham, adatul istifham, ayy. Which actually means the ayah, the purpose of the ayah is to make you ask questions. It's a means of curiosity. The ayah is supposed to inspire curiosity. Let's go through that list again. We've only got two items so far. Something valuable and something that makes you... What? Something that makes you what? Curious. Something valuable, something that makes you curious. The third meaning of ayy is al-jiha, direction. An ayah is something valuable, it's something that makes you curious, and something that points to a direction. When they look at the leftovers of the camp, they know that the camp went in that direction. Every ayah of Allah is pointing to a direction, and that direction is Allah Himself. Every ayah of Allah is pointing back to Allah. It is giving you directions to Allah. So the third, first one was what? You call it out loud, nice and loud. You guys, there's many of you here. Aha, uh -huh, valuable. What second? Curious. Third, direction, at-ta'ajjub, something amazing is also called an ayah. That's why they say, ayyu rajul hadha, what kind of an amazing guy is that? Amazing, amazing thing, ayyu bayt, what an amazing house. An ayah is something valuable, something amazing now. It's supposed to make you wonder, you know people who don't believe in God, people who don't have religion, they're pretty depressed. They're never amazed. Look at the bright sunny morning, subhanAllah. Yeah, so sunny. <laughs> so hot. The believer looks at the creation of Allah and he is amazed. She's amazed. The disbeliever says, They're just depressed. They're not amazed by it. 
They're never impressed. And the believer is constantly impressed because every ayah is a source of amazement, of wonder. Then, an-nida' wa tanbih beautiful. The word ya, you know, have you heard the phrase ya ayyuhalladhina amanu? Have you heard that before? Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu. The ay in ayyuha is adatu tanbih wa nida'. What that means in simple English is the ay part is there to get your attention and it is calling to you. Every ayah is calling you and trying to get your attention. Every ayah is calling you and trying to get your attention. In other words, human beings must pay attention to the reality around them. Everything around them, if you pay attention to it, you will learn lessons. If you don't pay attention, you'll learn nothing. So it's a means of getting your attention. That's it. Then be. The word ayah, another derivative of it is the word e. E is actually an Arabic word, E. E means yes. Like if somebody's talking to you and say, hey, did you, did you go to divine speech? They say, E. That means yes, absolutely. Now, those of you that know some Arabic, what's the other word for yes? Naam, naam. But E is used when you are absolutely convinced and you say, yes, I got it. It's yes when you are absolutely certain. In other words, the ayah is a means of bringing you certainty. It will make you, give you conviction. It's a source of conviction in ayah. The ayat are enough for you to be convinced. As part of that, I want to share something on the side with you. This is, again, an important philosophical point. The Qur'an is beautiful and because it's made of ayat. And the ayat are supposed to give you conviction. They're supposed to convince you that they are from Allah. But the Qur'an itself teaches you The skies and the earth already have ayat enough for people who want to be convinced. The skies and the earth have ayat not just for you to think but also to be convinced. In other words, conviction comes from all the ayat. Not just the ayat of the Qur'an, the ayat of the sky, the earth, all existence. They're also ayat and they're enough to give you conviction too. Subhanallah. Every ayah is enough to give you conviction. And we'll see the implications of that, inshallah, as the day progresses. Two more left. I'll go through it again. The first, ayah, the first meaning of ayah, by the way, was something valuable. Then we talked about a curiosity. Then we talked about direction. Then we talked about being amazed. Then we talked about something that's calling you. Then we talked about huh, certainty. Now we're going to talk about the word ayah, meaning meaning itself. Ay means meaning. Like in the reading tafsir, they say, هَذِهِ الْكَلِمَةَ أَيِّ تِلْكَ الْكَلِمَةَ They say this word means that word. أَيِّ actually means meaning itself. You know why that's beautiful? Because Allah is saying everything doesn't just have value, it has meaning. It has, it's something meaningful. For someone who doesn't believe in Allah, the universe has no meaning. Life has no meaning. It's pointless. It's purposeless. The word ayah itself indicates that it has meaning, it has substance. Then this is why the next meaning of ayah, the verb that comes from ayah is ta'ayya, which means to have intention, strong intention and motive. The ayah gives purpose. To have purpose is inside the word ayah. And finally, the ayah is what you commonly know as al-alama, a sign. Have you heard the translation of ayah as a sign before? Right? And that's part of the meaning of an ayah. That's a, that's a common usage of the word ayah as a sign. All of this is what an ayah is. <laughs> now you tell me how unfair is it to call it a verse? 
It's just our sentence. You just can't. I, I don't, the, the harder I try, the more I realize the only thing I can call the ayah is what? Ayah. The only thing I can call the surah is what? A surah. It's just on its own. It's unique. So these are the ayat of the Qur'an. So this, this was my basic introduction to why the Qur'an as literature is unique. The surah cannot be compared to anything else. The ayah cannot be compared to anything else. And in the macro studies, we'll even look at the word Qur'an. The name of the book altogether, Qur'an. And we'll look at that and say, why is, what's the benefit of calling it Qur'an? Does it give us some clues as to how we can understand it better? But that's tomorrow, inshaAllah ta'ala. Now let's talk a little bit about Arabic before I give you your break. A little bit about Arabic, an introduction to Arabic. It's not an Arabic class. But those of you that are writing this down, here's what you're going to write down. There are three kinds of Arabic. There are three kinds of Arabic. The first one is spoken Arabic. Spoken Arabic. The second one is formal Arabic. Formal, F-O-R-M-A-L, formal Arabic. And the third one is Old Arabic. You can call it Classical Arabic, Old Arabic, Ancient Arabic, whatever you want to call it. So, you tell me now, what was the first one? Spoken Arabic. Second one? Formal Arabic. Third one? Old Arabic, Classical Arabic. Before we start looking into the Qur'an, finding amazement in it, we have to know that the Qur'an was revealed in Arabic, but we have to also understand which Arabic. Because there are at least how many kinds of Arabic? Three. So we have to understand the difference between these three before we get into the Arabic of the Quran and analyze and, and extract benefits from the Quran. This is critical. So let's talk about spoken Arabic. Spoken Arabic is the Arabic that is used when you order a shawarma. It is used if you're watching an Egyptian soap opera, Astaghfirullah al Azim. Uh, if you are, you know, spoken Arabic is what's also called Ammiya or Al-Lahajat, right? Uh, this is dialectical, so the Algerians have their own and the Egyptians have their own and the Syrians have their own and the Moroccans have their own. The, the Palestinians have way their own. This is totally different. Like the Falahis have their own and whatever. Kayfa Haluk, you must have heard that before. Kayfa Haluk, the Falahi says Chif Halich. That's how they say, how are you? The Ka becomes Cha. The Egyptian says it's Zayik Beek. Right? So, uh, I don't know where that came from even. I, I tried finding it. Okay? So, the, the, the formal, the spoken Arabic is basically street Arabic, you can call it. Street Arabic, informal Arabic, and it's, everybody's got their own dialect. Everybody's got their own accent. And sometimes they're very different from each other. Like sometimes an Egyptian, if he's talking to an Algerian, may have a really hard time. If he's speaking, Amiya, he may have a really hard time. Like, what'd you say? Because especially after colonialism, there's some influences of like French and Spanish and other influences that came into those languages, and they got mixed in. And the, 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 the Arabs that live in America, they even have like English mixed into their Arabic. Like I was talking to an Imam one time, and then he's on the phone, and he said to his wife, Ana lam I was like, Lam ashub ba'd. What does that mean? I didn't. Then he said, What did you say? Mada kulf al Arabiya. He said, Oh, I didn't shop yet. And Lam ashub.
So shapayashupu became his verb for shopping. <laughs> Similarly, uh, one of my friends went to Egypt and he's trying to rent an apartment. And he goes, Hadi shukka mulayyat. Mulayyat. And he's like, Mulayyat. What's Mulayyat? I've never heard of. Oh, Mulayyat. Well lit. <laughs> From light. <laughs> so they. It's spoken Arabic. Okay, there are no rules. You can make it up as you go. Okay. The second kind of Arabic is what? By the way, the Quran is not in spoken Arabic. You should know. Alhamdulillah. The second is what? Formal Arabic. Formal Arabic is the Arabic of the newspaper, the Arabic maybe of Al Jazeera, the Arabic of the khatira and the lecture most done by most shuyukh, the, the lectures that you listen to, that you download. Those of you who are students of Arabic, you listen to lectures of sheikhs in Arabic. That's formal Arabic, but sometimes they tell you a joke, then they switch over to Amiya immediately. Right? So they do that sometimes. So, uh, you know, and sometimes, I, I, for example, I love listening to Sheikh Muhammad Ratib al Nabulsi, for example. It's really nice, clean. He's like your uncle sitting next to you, holding his arm over your shoulder, telling you a lecture. He's so nice. You know, and you just feel happy and cuddly inside when you listen to Sheikh Muhammad Ratib al Nabulsi. And he's got this wonderful explanation of the entire Quran online. He actually, we had the honor of him visiting our campus not too long ago in Texas. He visited, mashallah. So anyway, so he's talking and he's giving his lecture in the middle of it sometimes because he gets fired up, he goes back to his Syrian dialect. Right, and in the Syrian dialect, they use fi, the word fi, which in Arabic, in, in actual formal Arabic, it means in. But in informal Arabic, in spoken Arabic, it means there is. There is. So he says, fi sayyare, fi bayt, fi shukke. Fee, fee this, fee that, fee the other. I was like, fee? What's, what's inside a car and inside an apartment? Because there's an apartment, you have a this, you have a that, you have a that. So he uses the word what? Fee. Fee. Okay. There's another there's a crazy story, but I might as well tell you. The, the, the Urdu speakers, any Urdu speakers here? Urdu speakers, like two of you? Very good. Congratulations. Okay, so <laughs> the word fee, uh, 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 the word mafi, mafi is an Urdu word means sorry. Mafi means sorry. But mafi in Arabic does not mean sorry. You know what mafi means in Arabic? There's no, nothing. There's nothing. Like you go to the, the, the Arab guy and you say uh, Pepsi, mafi. Chocolate, mafi. Okay, Coke, fee. <laughs> you understand? So the Urdu speaker says mafi means what? Sorry. And the Arab speaker says mafi means nothing. Or there is, I don't have, there is nothing. Poor Pakistani guy, he goes to Umrah and he's standing at the haram, he's going, Allah mafi, Allah mafi, Allah mafi. <laughs> and the shurti, the cop, gets down, he starts beating him, fee, fee. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, there's spoken Arabic and there's what? Formal Arabic. Now, I speak some Arabic. I don't speak spoken Arabic. I do speak formal Arabic. 
uh, the, those of you that are going to an Islamic university, the professor speaks in Arabic. Guess which Arabic he speaks? Formal Arabic. The books and the PhD papers that are written, they're written in formal Arabic, okay? Uh, those of you that are victims of the book called Al-Arabiya Bayna Yadayk, that's supposed to be formal Arabic, okay? So, formal Arabic is what we find around us in those formal kinds of settings. Modern books and papers that are published are all formal. But, I need everybody here to know, there's a big difference between spoken and formal, and there's a big difference between formal and, what's the last one? Old Arabic, ancient Arabic, classical Arabic, there's also a big difference. And I need everybody before this introduction is done to understand the difference between formal Arabic and old Arabic. Because a lot of students make the mistake and they don't think there's a difference. So a lot of students think if they know formal Arabic, that must mean they also know old Arabic. And so what's the, the common mistake is nowadays formal Arabic, they call it Al-Arabiya Al-Fusha. Al-Arabiya al Fusha. Fusha is used formal Arabic. And so they say the Quran is in Fusha. And I'm also learning what? Fusha, which means it's the same. Fusha is Fusha. But actually, this is Al-Arabiya Al-Fusha Al-Mu'asira. And there's Al-Arabiya Al-Fusha Al-Qadima. There's modern Fusha and old Fusha. You have to maintain a difference between those two if you're going to make correct analyses of the Quran. Now let's understand why there's a difference between those two. The Arabs, at the time of the Prophet and even before that time, for thousands of years, even before that time, they lived in a desert. They lived in a place that did not have a lot of rivers and trees and greenery and they didn't, definitely didn't have oil yet. Like it was just desert. Now, in that environment, who were their neighbors? The Romans were their neighbors. The Abyssinians were their neighbors, the Persians were their neighbors, right? They had these kingdoms and empires that were their neighbors. But everybody left the Arabs alone. You would think the Romans would want to conquer more territory and take over the Arabs. You would also think that the Persians would like to conquer more territory and take over the Arabs. Because if you know something about big superpowers, they like to expand the size of their backyard. So the question is, how come nobody cares about what? The Arabs. How come nobody took over? And if they wanted to, could they have taken over? Yes, because they have massive armies, huge armies. And the Arabs had nothing, no resources. They were a Bedouin people. Easy to take over. The simple answer to why they didn't take over is, there was no oil yet. <laughs> okay? That's the simple answer. Why should we send my my soldiers, what we should, why should we send our soldiers to get barbecued in the middle of the sand? For what? Leave it alone. And if the Romans try to take over a little bit, then who will get nervous? The Persians on the other side. Because, you know, between two countries, usually there's a border and there's a uh, no man's land. I love that name, no man's land. Right? It means I know I own a lot of land in the world. Okay, so. So the, the Arab land actually became a kind of no man's land. Because if the, the, the Romans move in or the Persians move in, then the other party gets nervous and it might break out into a war, so everybody left it alone. So the Arabs were basically left alone. Now when you are left alone, simple question, when you are left alone, who do you talk to? Each other. You only talk to each other. You don't really talk much to people outside because 
you're only mostly spending time with each other. It's true, some Arabs did some trade, but for the most part, a lot of people didn't come in. People only went out and came back in. So it was an isolated culture for the most part. When that culture was isolated, Arabic became more and more and more refined, and it took less and less outside influence. Why is the apartment guy in Egypt saying this apartment is mulayyat? Why is he saying that? Because he's influenced by what? English, movies. There's outside influence. Outside influence affects language, doesn't it? It affects language. But if you have no outside influence, you keep your own original language. It's retained, it's refined. So the Arabs for thousands of years are, for the most part, left alone, which means their Arabic gets refined and refined and refined, and there is no outside influence. And this Arabic becomes so advanced. You know when you talk to each other for a long time, you develop your own language? Like when two people are friends for a long time, they have their own code. Nobody else understands that code, they, do, they understand each other, you understand that point? Socially, that's true too. Socially, the Arabs would talk to each other and they developed this advanced code among each other. Only they understand it, nobody else gets it. So when somebody comes from the outside, they say that guy is pretty much, he's like, pardon the term, he's retarded. He's ajami. He's retarded. He, he can't understand our speech. We're way up there. We're speaking a code. So they developed this code. It was very advanced. It really was. It's impressive. It's also important to note that these Arabs, what did they produce? Did they produce beautiful buildings? Did they produce the world's greatest artifacts, art, literature? They produce pretty much nothing. And every nation has to have something that they're proud of. They say, we have the world's greatest something. But the Arabs had, we have the world's greatest, so oh, what do we have? Hmm. <laughs> Language. <laughs> so they became proud of their language, because if you look around, there's not much else to be proud of. So they really took care of their language because when a nation becomes proud of something, they really take care of it. They really take care of it. Now, let's take a step further. You understand why Arabic was so refined and so developed? It got so refined and so developed that they, man, they, the way they used to think, it's fascinating. It's fa I'll just give you one example. I don't want to give you lots of examples. Just one example to make this point, how refined it was. I'll tell you the story of a poet. This guy was really poor. He didn't have any money. And he was married. <laughs> so his wife used to complain to him about what? Money. So he made a poem to answer his wife. And in the poem he said, فَسَيْلُ حَرْبٌ عَلَى مَكَانٍ عَالِي Strange poem. He says, heavy rain, listen to the English, it sounds crazy. Heavy rain is at war against a house on top of a hill. I know that sounds insane. I'll say that again. Heavy rain is having a war. Against who? Against a house. And where's the house? On top of a hill. I know you're poor. You're also insane. <laughs> you understand? Like, but this was actually his genius. He was speaking code. Let me decode it for you. Imagine there's heavy rain. Imagine there's a hill. There's a mountain, and on top of the mountain there is a house. When it's raining, where does the water go? Does it stay on the top or does it go to the bottom? 
It goes to the bottom of the hill, yes? So it floods the bottom. But the house, it attacks the house, but it never stays there. The attacks all fail because the only flood that happens is at the bottom. The poet is saying, wealth comes from Allah, wealth comes from the sky. But I'm a high person. Whenever wealth comes to me, it leaves me. And the people that are wealthy are down there in the flood in the mud. <laughs> they had a code. They spoke in code, man. And it's funny, it's, it's sometimes really funny, it's sometimes really like fascinating how creative they were in the code that they developed. But you know what happened when Islam became victorious? Let's fast forward. Islam became victorious, Allah gave this deen victory. People started entering into this deen. There are other nations, other ethnicities that haven't joined the Ummah yet. They started joining. The, you know, the Asia started getting conquered. The Roman, Roman territories, the Persian territories started getting conquered. And they're now becoming part of the world of Islam. Are all those regions Arab? Are all those regions Arab? No. So there's a huge population of new Muslims. Huge population of new Muslims all of a sudden. Within a few years. Now all of those people become students of Arabic, yes? When you're students of Arabic, do you speak good Arabic or really bad Arabic? You speak really bad Arabic. I mean, it's really embarrassing. Now there are millions of people that are speaking really bad Arabic. And because all of them have become Muslim, they want to come and make Umrah, they want to visit Medina, they want to settle in the Arab lands so they can learn. And if a lot of foreigners come into the country. For thousands of years, the Arabs were by themselves. You remember that? And now because of Islam, all these foreigners came in. These Persians and these Romans and these, these Indians, everybody came in. Do you think when foreigners come into the country, does the local language get better or does the local language get worse? It's happening everywhere in the world nowadays, isn't it? Foreigners come and the language goes down. Arabic started going down because of Islam. Actually, because of Islam. Because there were too many what? Non-Arabs. Too many of us. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> you know? Now what happens is, like you know, for, for example, in, in, in the United States, I spent a lot of my young years in New York. And New York is an immigration capital. People from all over the world move into New York. And I realized something as I traveled across the United States. The worst English spoken in the United States is in New York. That is also because it is the capital of immigration. Others are coming in. The big cities have the worst local language. I bet you the villages in Malaysia have a lot better local language than the city in Malaysia. Kuala Lumpur probably has much worse. I guarantee it. Why? People are coming in from the outside. Foreign influence, you understand? So now Arabic starts going down. And you would think this happened hundreds of years over time. Does it take a long time for a language to go down or a short time? We should know the answer to that nowadays. It takes a very short time. It takes an extremely short time. I've had personal experience with this. I learned Urdu in a Pakistani school until I was maybe 15 or 14 years old. And then I left the country. I've never been back to, back to Pakistan since. So the only Urdu I know is from what I learned back then. This is 20 years ago. Now, after all these years, I was asked to give a lecture in Urdu. 
So I gave a lecture in Urdu, but which Urdu do I remember? The Urdu I learned in school. So I started getting complaint emails, your Urdu is too complicated. Use more English words in your Urdu. I said, what happened here? You know, because the, even in Pakistan, the Urdu of 20 years ago is not the Urdu now, it's gone. So the people from back then don't speak the language that they speak now, it's deteriorated, you understand? So now having said that, let me tell you, even the Sahaba noticed. Did you know that? Even the Sahaba noticed that Arabic is going down. There's an interesting narration of Ali radiallahu anhu. He was walking by and he saw some kids playing with each other. And they're talking to each other. And he said, This is not the language of the Arabs. They're talking to each other, the Arab kids talking to each other in Arabic. And he's saying, that's not Arabic. What's going on here? Language is going down. It's crazy. The, the state of emergency were, be, were being noticed by people like Umar radiallahu anhu, Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu. There are narrations about this. Arabic is going down. Therefore, there were actually, this is now I'm at the conclusion of this introduction, there were three movements in Islam, the three protection movements. There was the movement to protect the Quran, there was the movement to protect Hadith, and there was the movement to protect Arabic. There were three movements. Most of the time people know about two movements. Which two movements? The movement to protect the Quran and the movement to protect Hadith. But they don't really remember the movement to protect Arabic. How do you protect Arabic though? All the big cities of Islam are getting contaminated by foreigners. So you cannot get good Arabic in the cities anymore. If you want to get the good, clean, old, unfiltered, uncontaminated Arabic, you must go to the Villages, you must go out in the desert that's still empty and go find the Bedouins that are still speaking the Arabic. So you find the stories of ulama like a Shafi'i rahimahullah, al-Asma'i and others. They leave the city and they go out in the desert and they're just sitting out traveling in the desert and you think, oh they traveled in the desert because of taqwa, because they didn't want to be in the city, because it was too mulayyat. You know? No, no, no. One of the reasons they traveled outside of the city was because they were trying to capture and record the original language. The original language. Like Asma'i, one of my favorite guys, I'll tell you a story about Al-Asma'i. He's, he's kind of, Rahmahullah, I want to go to Jannah. One of my motivations is I want to meet Al-Asma'i. Because he's one of the funniest people I've ever heard of, read about. He is hilarious. You know when people study for a long time, they become a little strange? If you spend your life in the library, you become a little weird, like, you know, you're not socially awkward kind of thing. He was, rahimahullah, socially awkward. He did not care what came in his mouth, he just said it. So he, he used to write a journal of his travels. He's learning Arabic, right? So he's traveling, and he wrote his journal, he was traveling somewhere, and he uh, came across a man, he says, I came across a man who was really ugly. And he wrote this in his journal, I'm like, wow! You are really honest, <laughs> and you don't care. And this, but this man was really nice to me, because nobody else knew me in the village. He took me in, he brought me to his house, he asked his wife to cook for me. So, his wife was cooking for him and she brought the food, and he said, I looked at his wife for one second, and I remember she was extremely beautiful. He wrote that down too, and a normal alim would not write that down. <laughs> this is a lasma'i, <laughs> he doesn't care. And then he wrote down, and when she left the room, 
I talked to, can she could still hear him from the kitchen. He talked to the husband, he said, Kaifahada. How did this happen? <laughs> See, that's a less value. He just doesn't care. Like, uh, I don't understand this situation here. Does she have vision problems or? <laughs> so she got angry at him. She from the kitchen, she got angry at, the, at him. And she said, oh, you should have taqwa of Allah. Maybe he was really good to Allah and I am his reward. Or maybe I was really bad and he's my punishment. <laughs> so I brought up Al-Asma'i because he actually went on these strange journeys only to do what? To capture the old Arabic. Because the city was still speaking Arabic. It's true. The city was still speaking Arabic. But it wasn't as pure as the Arabic of the desert. Now why is it important to protect the Arabic of the desert? It was important because the Qur'an came in the Arabic of the desert. I want, you to, I want to leave you with a visual so you understand this problem. This is a very important problem in Islamic studies. You have glasses. You have glasses. And those glasses have a little bit of dirt on them. When you put those glasses on, and you don't even realize they have dirt on them, everything you see looks what? Everything you see looks dirty. It doesn't look clean. Because you have what? Dirt on them. Sometimes your laptop has a stain on the screen. But you're looking at the file, the video, or the, the image, and you're like, that's kind of... You can't tell that that's a stain on the screen. It looks like a stain on the image itself. You understand? You have this dirt on the glasses. You don't think it's the dirt on the glasses. You think it's the dirt on what you see. Now, Arabic, old Arabic is clean glasses. Old Arabic is what? Clean glasses. And new Arabic is, the new formal Arabic even is still what? Some kind of dirty glass. Now when you're looking at a diamond with dirty glasses, you see something shiny but it's still dirty. Not that impressive. You look at the same diamond with what? Clear glasses and what do you see? Oh my God, that's amazing. That's incredible. The problem is not with the diamond, the problem is with your glasses. We have to look at the Quran not from formal Arabic, but from classical Arabic. The problem is classical Arabic died. It died in the desert. Thank Allah they protected it. So we can go back and dig and find those meanings again. I, how many meanings I gave you of the word ayah today? You will not get those meanings of the word ayah in which Arabic? Formal Arabic. You will only get the meaning of the ayah in what? Classical Arabic. Because the modern Arab, even if he speaks really good Arabic, does not know that Arabic anymore. It died. It, it's a history study now. It is a research study now. So we have to go back and learn that language. And study that language. So we can analyze the Qur'an with the proper lens. This solves huge problems for us. Inshallah, we'll see one of these problems repeat. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll discuss that with you, inshallah ta'ala, when the time comes, hopefully tomorrow. Hopefully tomorrow. Some interesting discussions are coming tomorrow. So it's time now for your well-deserved first break.